When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Fantasy. I am your host, A.E. Lanier. Today, I will be speaking with T. Kingfisher about her new novel, Thornhedge, a retelling of Sleeping Beauty that follows Toadling, the person in charge of keeping the fair maiden asleep inside her tower, and the thorns that surround that tower strong. T. Kingfisher is a fantasy and horror writer, known for books such as Nettling Bowen, What Moves the Dead, and House with Good Bones. She's also Ursula Vernon, the award-winning artist and children's book writer. She is joining us now. Hi, Ursula. It's great to have you. Hi, A. It's fabulous to be here. And then occurs to me suddenly, I don't know if I say hi, A, or hi, A, E. Uh, either is fine. Okay. So to start off, could you tell us a little bit about your interest in retellings generally and what stood out to you about Sleeping Beauty in particular? Uh, I think retellings, I like to do, to do retellings and pastiches and things because A, I'm very bad with plots. Plots are the hard part. And so if you do a retelling, you uh, particularly like a fairy tale retelling, you have a plot already laid out. You just get to find new ways to break it. Uh, so I enjoy that. I am also, if we're going to be completely honest, motivated by a combination of a desire and a spite and a desire to fix things. So I will frequently read something and be like, no one acts like that. This is what would have happened or, uh, uh, you know, things like that. For example, uh, my novella, What Moves the Dead, uh, came about entirely because I read Fall of the House of Usher and was like, the narrator is the most useless friend in the history of the world. Uh, and so I am going to fix that. And yes, there is certain arrogance deciding you're going to fix one of the most famous and, uh, you know, great stories in the English horror canon. But uh, here we are. So in the case of Sleeping Beauty, um, I never liked Sleeping Beauty. And like, uh, and I, I never liked the princess because she doesn't do anything. She like, her entire goal is just to fall asleep. Her, her purpose is to fall asleep. She is uh like the the 
what is it i if you could replace uh the character with a sexy lamp then uh, you should just do so he is a sexy lamp and uh so i wanted to tell the story in a way that made it interesting so i did but as a children's book i actually wrote a story called uh, uh harriet the invincible which is a children's book um it's the first of the hamster princess series where Harriet the hamster is should have been sleeping beauty and uses the fact that she's going to fall asleep at the age of, of 12 as uh, she's like, okay, if the magic means I have to fall asleep at the age of 12, that means I have to be alive at the age of 12, that means I'm invincible, that means I'll take up cliff diary. And it was a very fun story. She's, she's this very tough, uh, vibrant, adventurous, you know, warrior. And I really enjoyed writing it, but at the same time, while I was doing it, there was this sense that I could have also gone a completely different way. I could have like, it, it, like I, it was like I was standing on a road looking down the road, but if I turned around and looked behind me, there was the diametrically opposite way that I could go. And uh, Thornhead is that diametrically opposite way. It's, uh, the, the character is very, very different. Uh, Toad Langer main character is very different from Harriet. Uh, it's a book for adults, and uh, it but it was still there as the the way I could have gone with that story. So I wanted to go that direction with it. What was it about Toadling as a protagonist that sort of stood out to you or made you want to explore her? Uh, I I honestly, I started writing, I was maybe, I was like a page in and I loved her. Because uh, and it's dangerous to fall in love with your own characters because then you you don't either treat them as badly as the story requires or you assume the reader loves them automatically and you not put in any of the work to make them lovable. But I she was just very anxious and very worried and trying to do the right thing and overwhelmed and these are all emotions that I feel on a regular basis. I was like, oh yeah, I I know exactly how you feel. You are. You, this is a way too big a job for you, and but you have to do it, and you don't want to let everyone down, and you're constantly worrying if you're doing the right thing. I'm like, oh yeah, yep, we. Uh, I I I know all of these emotions. So I and she was a wear toad, and honestly, if I could be a wear toad, my life would be very different. It absolutely would be, and she is super adorable. I, lo- I also love her. She's great. Oh, good. Uh, could you talk a little bit, so she can turn into a toad, which is amazing. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of what she can and can't do or how she is as a, like, magical being? Sure. Uh, and uh, how, many, how much spoilering should I do? Here? Yeah. Uh, so I guess more like Arad's jokes. Yeah. She's a fairy, sort of, uh, a fairy kind of by accident, and uh, certainly not by design. She is not, you know, some great and powerful Oberon or Titania-like figure. She is, she can do some stuff, and water likes her, and if, if water is your friend, you can you can do a lot of things if you're clever, and she can turn into a toad. And she's uh, basically between water likes me and... I can do some very small magics, and I can turn into a toad. She she manages to make those things work for her uh, very hard, which, you know, if you want to grow a giant bag of thorns, then it's useful to be able to water them and things like that. So uh, 
Uh, and a lot of it is, uh, she, she has this sort of magic that is asking things for help and favors, not uh, standing and demanding and do this or ordering it. She uh, she tries to make friends and, and request help rather than uh, command it. I feel like that magic feeds so well into the natural world. Um, definitely, I've read a lot of Sleeping Beauty retellings at this point, and I don't think the natural world and the briars in particular have ever felt quite as alive as they do in this one uh the thorns feel like more like a character than an obstacle a lot of the time in a way that is like very gentle and wholesome um and Uh, which is odd because the big the the hand of thorns is like one of the very defining sleeping beauty things it's up there with the spindle but uh, lots of people, I think, just don't see plants, or they or or they think of the the thorns as an inorganic quality, like the spinning wheel, and so it's they're just two set pieces as opposed to you know a huge living thing that is there. Well, and the whole natural world really is very much a piece of this work, um, and you're obviously like a very avid gardener that sense of the world is apparent in a lot of your work is very apparent um in toadling's point of view as well and so i was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about like plants and like i don't know reclaiming the briars right to exist (laughs) in this story uh if it's just talking about plants i'm like how long how long do you want this podcast to be Uh, i i can start and uh and never stop but uh honestly the problem i usually have is that because i find nature endlessly fascinating i frequently will like try to rein myself in in books because i'll be like okay your every single protagonist cannot be a gardener people are going to get sick of it and so i uh i often find myself you know trying to find or and, and so many people don't notice the natural world unless they are you know involved in it deeply that I am often trying to come up with uh, professions or whatnot where they wouldn't pay attention because it is, I will just write, you know, okay, uh, the trees are, are, you know, okay, well, this is is around here, you know, it's uh, tulip, poplar, and sweet gum, and hickory, and oak, and all of that, as opposed to it was trees. And then I have to stop and think, okay, why would the, the, the viewpoint character even know any of that? So I have invented botanist relatives of my uh, the horror novel I handed in uh, a month or two ago. Uh, the heroine is a scientific illustrator. It's uh, it can be hard, honestly, to to make the organic feel organic in the story because I think we so much writing is so very divorced from it uh, these days, and we're so used to that that it's like you know you you don't expect to, uh, uh, regular people to necessarily know what any tree they look at is which is, Lord knows, a big shift away from 100 years ago, or you know, certainly 200 years ago. We uh, we have, in fact, uh, lost vast numbers of words to describe specific uh, things in nature, and I believe it's Robert McFarland, does, uh, the author, does some amazing books that uh, his, that have just been collections of lost words that have fallen out of favor in, uh, in Britain on... So, you know, uh, Scottish words and Cornish words and whatnot for things like 
the little opening at the base of a wall where rabbits go back and forth. And there was a specific word for that. And like it had a name, but because the, it's not used very much, uh, it falls out of favor. So yeah, uh, I think this book, I think Landmarks, I think is the book. It is totally worth checking out because you just go through and it's just like, he'll he'll have whole lists of words that you know and what they describe and some of them are amazing and you know exactly what it is what you know but words for the different types of tussocks in a swamp that you step on the ones that you know will fall away under your feet the ones you can step on and the in the fog that lies around it and it's uh, it's amazing and we've become kind of divorced from that now unfortunately and uh, it's not a conscious effort on my part to bring it back or anything i just I, it's something i feel passionately about and i also spend a lot of time in the garden looking at bugs so it just comes up i'm like of course you you know what to write a book about bugs bugs are cool well i think that's something that's so interesting about writing like either actually in the past or in spaces like fairy tales where they're very like past adjacent because you're right right people are so disconnected from the natural world in a way that is deeply unusual if you look at the experience of humans on the planet um and i think this book does a really great job of making that feel real and alive but also in some ways accessible because totaling it basically like a swamp fairy and so then you're like of course she's into the swamp she's a swamp fairy and then you can like learn to think about the world in that way through her yeah it's it's i uh i i don't want to you know write textbooks on you know field guide to to fairy tale swamp plants although that would actually be a fabulous story uh, but anyway on a uh yeah, I always did wonder what species the brambles around uh, Sleeping Beauty's tower were, and I did not actually address in this one other than bramble, which is honestly in Europe a sort of generic, you know, that thing. Here it would probably be Himalayan blackberry. Do you have an answer in the story that you just left out, or did you like set that as boundary for yourself that you weren't going to go in that deep? Uh, I think uh, I actually got so distracted by other things i forgot to mention it <laughs> i sat down and like worked out but no it's just it, it's a bramble thicket patch thorn thing which like kind of like hedgerows they're not one species they're just a whole bunch of things that grow up very densely and thickly and uh briar patches you know can be like that there's three or four species and they're all sort of knotted around each other as it like that environment so it's probably a mix of things. Now that's going to bug me and I'm going to have to go think about it. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but also please get back to us because now I'm also very curious. So um, there's obviously like fairies in this fairy tale retelling. And I was wondering how you went about thinking about the ways in which you were going to include like the fae or not. Um, and particularly your choice to focus mostly on green teeth. Uh, I hadn't seen it done before. And uh, the green teeth are in a, uh, I think Jenny Greenteeth is the, the name of the sort of original, uh, probably English monster. And, you know, they're child stealing monsters that live in water and swamps. And they're, they're your classic kind of 
you tell kids that it will eat you so they stay away from the water kind of thing, uh, monster. And uh, I believe one shows up in uh, the Pratchett book, uh, We Free Men, but that was the only reference I had ever seen to grain teeth. And I had read about them a million years ago when I was a little kid and had a, a book that I think changed the course of my life, which was called uh, The Encyclopedia of... Uh, Encyclopedia of Fairy to uh, Fantasy Monsters thing, and of course, uh, oh, Encyclopedia of Legendary Creatures. That's it. And the illustrations were by, and it was you know one of those sort of books that you uh, read as a kid that has like the Cliff Notes version of a whole bunch of different uh, things. But yeah, the illustrations were by Victor Ambras, who is an amazing illustrator, and uh, they were very vivid. And it was much better written than a lot of them, and it had all of these monsters that like were kind of obscure and it didn't shy away from the sort of horrific elements of a lot of it. Like uh, uh, there was a one, the uh, Azwadl, which was, I'm probably mispronouncing that, which was a Aztec monster that would drown people and then uh, they would, the bodies would be washed up on shore missing their teeth, toenails, uh, fingernails and toenails and eyeballs. And I like spent hours trying to figure out what it was doing with the teeth and the fingernails and the toenails. I, I assumed it ate the eye. I mean, those aren't... I finally decided, I think, that it was... that it had an extra hand on its tail, and I was like, what if it doesn't have fingernails, and it's stealing the fingernails to use them on its tail? And, uh, yeah, that's the kind of kid I was. But it had green teeth in it, and uh, so... I was one of the monsters that was sort of floating around in my brain, and I was like, I don't think anybody's done that. I don't think that certainly no one has done anything that is sympathetic to the green teeth that is like what their life was like and uh, what do you eat when you can't get small child who got too close to the river and things like that. I think it's just such a minor, you know, weird, nasty thing as opposed to, you know, the other parts of Faye, which are like, you know, the great and terrible and horrifying uh, and powerful or just kind of a thing where it's over in the corner of the swamp eating children. They're very sweet and wholesome in this book for, like, creatures that eat children. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I often wrote very wholesome things. I don't know why it, it ends up that way. Like, this book is so wholesome and sweet. And I, I, I think, that, actually, I think Thornhead is very sweet. I kept saying, this is a very sweet book. And then I would stop and be like, okay, there, there are some corpses and child-eating monsters, but it's sweet. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely like a lot of death, but there's also, I think, this mutual appreciation throughout like most of the characters in the book that for all the like child eating monsters and corpses and various things like creates like a, a warm necromantic vibe. It's yeah, I I it's just how I wind up writing, I think. And Speaking of people that are like often not actually gentle, and in this really are, um, could you tell us a little about Halim, who after Toad Ling is probably like the biggest character in this book? Yeah. Well, if you're going to have sleeping beauty sooner or later, the knight is going to show up to try to rescue her. And uh, in this case, the knight is Halim, who is, uh, he is a knight, uh, he is Muslim, he's, uh, a very nice person. He, he's actually a, a very gentle soul, 
but if you're not in the middle ages, you know, bad things happen. Uh, and he's not, you know, great at being a knight. He He's not, I don't think he's really as bad at it as he thinks he is. But honestly, if you don't have a lot of money, uh, a lot of knights were extremely poor and just went around to tournaments, you know, trying to win money and jousts and things. And if you lost it at a joust, I mean, historically this is true, or if you lost it at a joust, like, you would often have to put your armor up as, uh, uh, like, being forfeit. And so you were like, then you'd have to get the money to ransom back your armor kind of thing. It was it was not really easy. Uh, and since, as I think he says, uh, people in this particular uh, iteration of fake medieval Europe were... Uh, uh, discovered that having orders of rights was an easy way to get your penniless younger sons out of the house. Uh, he this sort of, you know, wanders around a lot and he likes stories and he finds a book about uh, interesting, uh, you know, that has an interesting story in it about a castle surrounded by thorns and he's like, oh, I'll go check that out. I'm not doing anything else. And then finds himself, meets Toadling and finds himself embroiled in the story and he is also very sweet. He he is he is trying very hard to do the right thing as a knight, and but also, I mean, he doesn't want to be rude. You find a fairy, and you, you shouldn't be rude. But also, he seems very sweet, and he's like, he's like, is she trapped here under a curse? Is she under a curse? Is there a curse? I don't know what's going on. And uh, I I liked him too a lot because he he goes through a fairly logical problem solving. And usually that's exactly what I'd do in a situation like that. Okay, is this a curse? Well, let's see if we can break the curse somehow. You know, let's get out the salt and let's get someone to bless this. And okay, I guess I can get holy water. It's not my religion. And uh, okay, I found a rabbi, but he wants to come along and talk to the fairy. And she seems very shy. So maybe put that on hold. <laughs> so he's, he's very likable. He is a sweet cinnamon roll that is doing his best. And I love him. This movie, I think, does a really interesting job of feeling, right, very set in the Middle Ages and set in a time uh, in the way that stories often are, right? Like, Helene talks about his family originally coming from Anatolia. You have this sense of Black Death and Plague going on. But there still very much is this fairy tale sense as well, particularly because Toadling is our point of view. And Toadling is not super in touch with what humans are doing. Um, and so I think that that was just a really interesting blending of being both like grounded in this fictional history and still very fairytale. I was wondering how intentional that was, what you thought about sort of the temporal setting moving into the story. Uh, I actually sat down and worked out the history, more or less, of the uh, the era. It, it diverges basically from our reality as an alternate history, uh, I suppose, of at uh, the point uh, right before the First Crusade. And uh, instead of a First Crusade, you get a uh, the final plague of Justinian, which uh, the plagues of Justinian were huge, major plagues uh, prior to the Black Death. But uh, there was never a, a final plague of Justinian. But uh, in this case, the crusade got cut off by having a Black Death-style uh, massive plague that, that swept over Europe and 
kid uh, took out like 50% of the population. And so from there, and then I, you know, basically worked out the, the history. And, and this is a, a history that I've kind of had kicking around in my head for a while. Like a couple of my alternate fairy tales are set there, it just doesn't come up as much uh, because there's, you know, you know, in real life, most of us don't sit around and um, uh, speak exposition for the benefit of the re- of the reader about you know well here we are uh, six hundred years after the Black Death swept Europe kind of thing and uh, maybe we should start uh, I don't know maybe it would help people catch up on the timeline but uh, I so this is a setting that a couple of other of my books have kind of been in but it hasn't really come to the forefront as much. And in this one, because the uh, because totally basically for a, a couple of centuries is sitting and watching things go by, I was like, okay, we gotta we gotta figure this out here, and okay, so we gotta put the plague here and this here and migration in here, and these are the factors, and then the Danes would have invaded Europe instead of England, and I worked honestly, uh, I think. Uh, Maybe it was Therese Nielsen Hayden who said once that uh, all alternate history comes down to how much you hate the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, that was basically all of this. I was like, okay, so we just get rid of the Holy Roman Empire. We this, let's put this here. Uh, so it's much more worked out than it, I think, uh, but hopefully then it comes out across the book. Like, I don't do a big info dump about history because Hildling doesn't care. And at one point, I think Halim tries to explain it and he's just like, oh, I'm really bad with dates i'm sorry i don't remember when this happened so which is like me trying to explain black death to somebody well i think time plays such an interesting role in the novel generally because you have first off like moving between fairy and the human realm so things are wonky there and then time both passing very quickly and not Toadling spends a lot of time as a toad, and toads have a different relationship to time. So that was just something that I thought was a really interesting theme throughout. Um, and did you know, sort of coming in, how long you thought the story was going to take? I never know anything. Half the time, I, I like, I did not, I didn't plot anything. I literally just was like, huh, and sat down and started typing the first paragraph. And unusually, it it stayed the first paragraph. Like the the intro, like I didn't, you know, uh, go back and be like, okay, we actually have to start this, you know, 50 pages later or whatnot. I was just like, started somewhere and it wound up being where it started. Uh, it, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I discover it as I go along. Uh, it's, so, I mean, there's the, the pantser versus plotter, but some people prefer discovery writer, which is you discover what's happening as you write it, which certainly is uh, true of how I wind up writing a lot of things. I uh, I did not know. I knew there was a night. I didn't know what Halim was like until basically it was time for him to say his first couple sentences. And uh, then I found out along the way. So... By now, I have done this and written sufficiently many books that I have a lot of faith in the process that by the time I get there, my brain will grab the thing that either should go there or a thing that goes there perfectly fine. I mean, there are a there hundred different ways any given story could go, and most of them 
uh, would be equally good, but I just go with whatever my brain grabbed to shove in the the character shaped hole there. And I was like, oh, you seem nice. Yeah, you are. <laughs> One of the things that I think a lot about with Halim in particular is sort of this idea of like trust and appearances. One of the things that a lot of fairy tale retellings end up on deconstruct it is this idea of being like good and healthy and able-bodied or being beautiful as examples of goodness um which is obviously deeply troubling and something that a lot of retellings play with um and Helene feels very authentically like sort of pushing against that to begin with and the story does too um and so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about sort of like appearances and trust and how those came into the story. Well, uh, it's it's a very, uh, very, I was about to say 19th century Christian thing, but it's been going on for way longer than the 19th century. That, you know, the, the good and just must be beautiful. And if you are ugly, you know, the ugly old witch is bad. And if something bad happens to you, uh, if you are ugly or if you are sick, it is because you are bad and God did that to you. It's a very, very uh, Middle Ages kind of view of morality that uh, if you are healthy, it is because you deserve to be. And if you are sick, it must be because you deserve to be kind of thing. We have not gotten as far from that. And as God knows, I would like uh we there is still a great deal of it must be your fault that you are disabled or sick or whatever in underlying so much of our modern uh, the way we treat disability and illness and fatness and every axis of everything but uh i i mean toads are i think toads are awesome but very few they are they are considered one of the ugly animals by people who are not herpetologists and enthusiasts and so uh, right out of the gate, Toadling was never going to be beautiful. I mean, she's either a toad or she's a woman who looks kind of like a toad. So that's just how it is. And uh, the the fact that, uh, and uh, Halim does not know for 90% of the, the novella that uh, whether or not she's the good guy, he but he is, he is flying blind and talking to someone who certainly looks like she is, you know, the, the Wicked Swamp Fairy who is keeping a prisoner in a tower. And it comes down to whether or not he decides to trust her. Uh, and realistically, many knights in the Middle Ages probably would have tried to chop Toadling's head off and uh, then it would be a much different, sadder story. But Pauline's uh, cool. Even if there's not consistent trust, there is respect for the like beings around, which yes. is sweet. yeah. And and trust is such a complicated thing. Like uh, it, I I think someone some character in another book I wrote somewhere said something like trust is a combination of your faith in someone's goodwill and your understanding of their abilities. Like. I can trust that uh, 
you know, the dog means me no harm, but I can't trust her to stay with alone with a ribeye steak on the table. That's not because I don't trust her. That's because I know what her capacity is. And it is not to leave a ribeye steak on the table, even though she is an extremely trustworthy dog as these things go. Uh, and that she's not ever going to bite anyone or anything. You know, it's, you trust people in different ways and you trust that uh, you have to know what people are capable of and not ask them to do things that are beyond their capacity. Uh, and uh, yeah, something like that. It's yeah. complicated. Well, I think that and simple way is so interesting, right? Because no one really knows what anyone else is perspective or capacity or goals are uh but and, and it's entirely possible as i think helene says at one point you know this entire thing could be you under a spell trying to gain my trust and and he doesn't say that i'm sure he thought it which was you know maybe this entire thing is just a a very clever curse maybe you're a victim of the curse too and i should be you know uh like trying to break it in the usual fashion because that will free you. Maybe you're not able to tell me the truth. So now I'm having to figure out whether I think you're under the curse and say, saying that because of the curse or whether it's actual reality. I don't know. Yeah. It's a really fun, sweet novel with a lot of swamps in the best way. Swamps are awesome. I... I I live in a swamp now. I mean, not like actually in a swamp. The house is not sinking as we thought it might be a little, but that's never here and there. But this is a very swampy area. It's very humid. And uh, the I, I have learned, I, I like deserts, frankly, that's where I grew up, but I have learned to appreciate swamp life since moving to North Carolina. They, they have a lot of really cool carnivorous plants here. And I think really anyone looking to develop an appreciation for swamp life should definitely pick up this novel. It's, again, such a sweet, gentle, murderous, damn <laughs> retelling. And it's so much fun. Uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with us about it. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, delighted to be here. Thank you again. All right. I have been speaking with T. Kingfisher about her novel Thornhedge, out on August 15th. I have been your host, A.E. Lanier. Thank you so much for listening. And please consider feeding the algorithms by subscribing, leaving a review, shouting about Thornhedge to the moon in the middle of the night, all of those things. Um, I will speak to you soon. And for now, happy reading.